Hi, I'm Jeff Sickinga, Executive Director of the Ashbrook Center, and this is The American Idea, where we discuss the ideas, people, and events that have made America what it is today. We believe that by understanding our history and our principles, we can better live up to the promise of the American founding and preserve our ongoing experiment in self-government. Welcome to The American Idea. I want to welcome everybody to this episode of The American Idea. Today, we're joined by, uh, rejoined by a, a, a great friend of Ashbrook, uh, Ed Acorn. Uh, those of you who know, we had a great conversation with Ed on his wonderful book, The Lincoln Miracles. Uh, the Lincoln Miracle, discussing Abraham Lincoln's rise to the presidency, the, the um, unlikely story of that rise. If you haven't purchased Ed's book on Abraham Lincoln, you thought you knew everything you know about Abraham Lincoln. I promise you, you don't know that story. <laughs> and it is told <laughs> with a journalist's eye for the details of the story and the flow of the story. And it's a wonderful recounting of that story by Ed. Not surprising, an award-winning journalist, uh, a finalist for major awards uh, <laughs> in, in the world of writing. He is a terrific writer. Let me commend everything Ed has written to, for our listeners to go out and purchase, including The Lincoln Miracle. But today, it's the summer, and we're going to be talking about America's pastime, a wonderful book that Ed has also written, and I think it's got one of the best titles I may have ever heard. <laughs> Ed, I want to get this right, and I want to get the subtitle right. This book is called <laughs> The Summer of Beer and Whiskey, How Brewers, Barkeeps, Rowdies, Immigrants, and a Wild Pennant Fight Made Baseball America's Game. Ed, did I get that right? You did. That's a tremendous. Okay. <laughs> Ed Acorn, welcome, again. welcome back to The American Idea. Thank you, Jeff. It's great to be here. Um, this book, it's such an interesting subject, but I have to tell you, when I think about um, baseball games, and maybe even baseball today, compared to football, compared to basketball, other typically American sports, it seems very um, staid in some respects. It's not in constant motion. There isn't constant violence, and there isn't football, for example. Um, there isn't constant scoring like there is in basketball. It seems slow paced. It seems staid. As I said, it seems a little um, uh, conservative almost in that small c sense of the word. But your book, which is a terrific book, talks about the wild origins of America's pastime. What was the summer of beer and whiskey? Well, you're right. The early baseball was considered a um, just sort of this wild and fast-paced game. It's hard to believe, given uh, the reputation it's gotten. Um, so the summer beer and whiskey is about uh, a, basically a single season in early baseball, 1883. And it's about a group of immigrants and bartenders and and uh, uh liquor manufacturers who set up a rival league to the established national league they call it the american association and they charged uh, uh 25 cents admission instead of 50 cents for the national league they they permitted the sale of beer and in some cases whiskey at their ball games uh something the national league did not do 
They had Sunday games, something the National League did not do. And I think this is doing all that stuff. They they generated enormous interest in baseball. Baseball was on the verge of dying out, many people thought. And by bringing this new life into the game, basically because of the immigrant experience, they regenerated the game and made this this wonderful new league that uh, people could go to. Uh, so t- take us back. So 1883, maybe even before 1883, you yes. said there's the National League that exists. Some of yeah. our listeners are going to be baseball historians and they're going to have read, you know, works by, say, for example, George Will, the political commentator also writes on baseball, as you know. They might know some of this, but early baseball, baseball by 1883, what is its situation in America? Well, it's it's based in the largest cities of America. Thanks to uh, railroads, it became feasible for clubs to travel all around the country, the best best clubs, and they formed into leagues and created uh, professional baseball. And many of the same uh, teams exist today. It's it's very interesting. Chicago Cubs, for instance, go all the way back to the beginning of the National League uh, in 1876. Uh, same, uh, the Boston team uh, beca- became the Braves and it still exists in Atlanta. <laughs> so these franchises go way, way back. Uh, and baseball was developing then. It, it had begun as the sort of gentlemanly game that um, men had formed clubs and they went out and played baseball at their clubs, which is why it's still called ball clubs. Uh, and they they played a sort of gentle game thrown underhand. Um, they would whack the ball and they would catch it barehanded. By 1883, this had become a very fast, brutal, uh, ruthless game <laughs> played barehanded still with a baseball as hard as the ball today. So you can uh, um, imagine how dangerous that was and how much skill you needed to play this game. Um, the pitchers uh, could take sort of a running start. They were pitched out of a box, which is why we still say the pitcher was knocked out of the box. Uh, it was basically a chalk, chalk square, uh, chalked rectangle on the ground, and there was no raised pitching mound, and they sometimes took a running start and heaved the ball. Um, and it was played very ruthlessly. Uh, they didn't permit. Um, substitutes during games so the guys who suited up the nine players who suited up had to stick it out for the whole game whether they were injured or not right well (laughs) if they were too severely injured you could you could get somebody else in in their place but once somebody was in they the other one was out for the for the game and you had to convince the umpire that this was the case so it was it was a really a raucous tough game and it you know, I write these. I wrote these baseball books not just as baseball, but to to write about the culture of America at the time, which was very difficult. I mean, we we don't give our ancestors credit for what they went through. Um, people were injured on farms and and in factories. They had very short lifespans. They worked themselves to death and. Uh, these ball players had some of that quality. I mean, they they were they were delighted to be playing uh, out in the open in the fresh air, as opposed to what many of their 
fellow Americans were doing, and uh, they fought really ruthlessly to keep these jobs. And they played injured, and they they sustained a lot of damage uh, playing this game. So these were uh, um, these were professional players. Would they have been paid? Oh yes, they were professionals, uh, major league players. They uh, they probably made two thousand to three thousand dollars a year. Maybe maybe some of the worst players a little less than that. That compares to about five hundred dollars that a um, laborer would make per year. So they were sort of not wildly out of the range of uh, average Americans in those days. Uh, and then often they had to work during the winter, which uh, damaged them further in some cases. So, uh, yeah, it was a professional game uh, played with high, by highly skilled players. They were essentially all white, although I write, I devote a chapter in this book to the first recognized major league black player in 1884 who was uh, Moses Fleetwood Walker and the stuff he went through was just brutal uh in, in uh, Jim Crow America you could imagine so take us back then to 1883 and your story uh it has an unlikely protagonist <laughs> <laughs> well I wanted to I wanted to get into th this uh just this crazy wild league and it, especially the the leading figure in the book is this guy named Chris Vondere, who was a German immigrant. Some people pronounce it Vonderache, but I, I just go with Vondere. Uh, and he was a German immigrant. He, he ran a grocery, which essentially dis, uh, dispensed liquor to people coming in off the street. And he, uh, he, he realized there was this uh, interesting game going on down the street from his, from his grocery and he started to pay some attention to it and he realized this is a good way to sell beer to uh to bring beer out to the ballpark and uh he would make some money selling beer so he he took his life savings this is when uh in st louis nobody could make a go of baseball in st louis believe it or not until this guy and he he took his life savings and he sort of saved the the ballpark that was rotting away and he uh, sold beer at the games, and he he did everything I mentioned. Have Sunday games uh, in the in the National League on the on the, mostly on the Eastern Seaboard. These were very Protestant, staid, traditional communities, and they wouldn't permit uh, baseball on Sundays. Sunday was a day of rest, and the blue, blue laws were very strictly enforced. The immigrants uh, that settled, especially German immigrants in the in the Midwest, uh, had a very different attitude about Sunday. That was a family day. You'd go out and go to picnics and enjoy yourself, and go to ball games, go to you know uh, saloons and everything. Uh, and, and that was the German experience. You would enjoy Sunday. So, so this it's interesting how these immigrants shaped America's culture and and really changed America's culture. Uh, brought in beer. Beer wasn't uh, a popular drink in America at all until the German immigrants came in and and created these wonderful uh, beers. Some of which, some of the um, just saw the other day one of the uh, recipes for St. Louis beer that 
was brought in by an immigrant and eventually became Sam Adams in Boston. Uh-huh. And that was that was from a St. Louis German immigrant. So uh-huh. uh so it's it's very interesting. And the book's about it's not just about baseball, but it's about immigrants. It's about lager beer and how that changed America, about uh the different values of the di- of the older English uh uh, immigrants and the modern the more modern european uh german and and irish immigrants so and as this, an, yeah i was going to ask you that question because i'm i'm reading the book myself and thinking okay it's amazing some of the challenges that he had to overcome to get baseball going in st louis and then to establish this rival league what were some of those challenges for our listeners well i mean baseball had been uh had gotten a really rank odor because uh, the National League had had a gambling scandal. Uh, a, a pennant was thrown in um, 1877 by by the Louisville Club, and Boston uh, won that won that pennant. So it was uh, it was it was similar to the Black Sox scandal of 1919, the famous. Uh, scandal that th- really threatened the existence of baseball because if people can't trust the games to be played on the level uh they won't go out to the games and baseball had just gotten this bad odor to it and and this guy had to to fight to bring back um people to the games and uh it's it's quite amazing how they did it they started to get these huge crowds and it's because they they you know, immigrant, I mean, working people in America in those days worked six days a week. They worked, you know, through Saturday and uh, Sunday was their only day off. So this guy was having baseball games on Sunday uh, and that permitted people who worked relentlessly to to get out to the ballpark and enjoy the game. So it was, it was all this stuff. Uh, he, um, you know, he knew nothing about baseball, which is quite extraordinary. Yeah, he, that's uh, what I found remarkable. This <laughs> wasn't a guy who had played for a few years and then decided to take his hand at ownership. Right. And he uh, and he kept overruling his managers, which is a very, very dangerous thing for him to do because he, he didn't really have a clue. He would scream at the uh, players after a game, why did you drop that ball? As if, you know is if they could explain, you know, why uh, they couldn't catch a ball in a certain situation. And he's constantly threatening them and everything. So it's a, it's a funny story. This guy's a, a very, I mean, he's sort of like the original Yogi Berra. He had all these sayings that were, I wish I had listened to mine own advice. And uh, <laughs> and he, uh, he talked about killing one note killing one bird with a double stone and all that stuff so he uh he would mangle the language but he would have these pretty good ideas and and he hired some very smart people <laughs> to uh run his run his team for him so with, i get into this incredible pennant race in 1883 where all you know five teams i think were were in it to quite a ways through the season and uh it, it and it's just I just try to uh express what a wild situation this was for instance there's a 
the the Philadelphia Athletics, who are uh, still exist as the Oakland A's, but um, they they uh, brought in this college pitcher who was called Jumping Jack Jones, and he literally jumped when he threw threw a pitch, and this uh, staggered all the hitters, and he had a huge influence on that pennant race. He brought it brought him in right at the end of the season. So I I get into all the you know the the really funny and quirky elements of baseball is totally forgotten today except for you know you got to go back to the original sources the the newspaper accounts of the games and memoirs and all that stuff and dig it all out and you find these wonderfully colorful characters and these great players and these great stories and and uh injuries yeah, i have to tell you I, I i when in reading your book what i appreciated so much and maybe not surprising from a newspaper man like yourself but um your attention to the newspaper coverage of the games and of the goings on um were there um people you know were there sports writers that had the baseball beat did that exist i mean newspapers were obviously incredibly important in american life in the late 19th century just yeah. tell us a little bit about the relationship between baseball and newspapers. Oh, it was it was a, a marriage made in heaven. I mean, these these papers discovered by the 1880s that you, they could sell a lot of cop, copies with doing game coverage, uh, and they would cover like every play of the game and describe it and go through it, so you can get a real feel for what these games were like. Uh, and there were beat reporters, recognized beat reporters. They didn't sign their, didn't usually sign their stuff with their names. So, but they were known uh, around the league, and they they got into these really uh, pissy fights with other sports writers, and that was part of the humor of it. So, I have some of that in the book of them. Uh, well, insulting. at least there's none of that in contemporary media. <laughs> no, but they're <laughs> insulting each other and carrying on, and that was. Uh, that was a really fun thing to discover in the 1880s. Um, and they had their own language. Like I had to learn the language of baseball in the 1880s. It's a different, you know, there's all sorts of. Yeah, for our listeners, what are some of those terms that you encountered? <laughs> well, they, you know, they, they talk about fans as cranks, you know, they, they were known as cranks in those days. And this, this oh boy, I, I'm drawing a blank here, but there's all sorts of uh, terminology for for different plays that are that are not what we would use today. So I had to learn this language and then sort of translate it for the for the reader. Before we continue with our conversation, I'd like to have one of our faculty members tell you about a special documents based graduate program for teachers of American history, government and civics. Hi. This is John Moser, Chair of the Master of Arts in American History and Government program at Ashland University. If you are an educator who teaches U.S. history, government, or politics, our program may be just what you've been looking for. Our approach is to emphasize primary sources, since we think the best way to study the past is to read the words of those who lived it. We have a distinguished faculty made up of professors from both Ashland University and from colleges and universities across the country. And they're not there to lecture to you. We think it's better to learn through conversation about the documents. Ours is a hybrid program with two different types of seminar. 
The first are our week-long intensive in-person courses during the summers on the beautiful campus of Ashland University. The second are our live synchronous online seminars offered throughout the year. So if you're a social studies teacher and you're looking to deepen your understanding of America's past and its politics, please check out the Master of Arts in American History and Government program. You can do that by visiting tah.org slash programs. But, you know, I think it's just so wonderful how baseball in any era you look at it, it, it says so much about American culture at that time. It's, it's almost uncanny. Yeah. Uh, and that's what in I, fact, I was going to ask you that question because yeah. you were saying this is not just a baseball history. But yeah. for our listeners, this is a social history, it's a cultural history, and to some degree, a political history as well of that, of, you know, 1883 in right. America. Um, you... I was just going to say, when you look at baseball in 1883, in your mind, how does it reflect, how is it shaped by American culture? How does it reflect American culture? And maybe to some degree, how does it itself shape American culture? Right. Well, you know, the American Association is, is you know, this, which was known as the uh, Beer and Whiskey League, hence the title of the book. But they uh, they were clearly reflected the change, as I discussed, the change in American culture as immigrants came in and Sunday became an acceptable day to enjoy. Um, that's one way it reflects American culture. The the the. Uh, grim dedication of the players uh, and, and their willingness to take risks and cheat <laughs> to win reflects the American culture of the time. It was a very gung-ho culture where uh, people to get ahead had to really work and uh, really bend the rules. Uh, and that reflects it. Um, it reflects the racial tensions in America at the time and how uh, it just uh, was considered outrageous for this league to bring in a black player. Uh, and that was very quickly clamped down on. Um, and I think that's a remarkable story of this guy. This uh, black player went at, He's very similar to Jackie Robinson in some ways. He went to college. He was um, very sort of self, he kept very strong self-control. He was able to deal with these taunts and not, not react uh, in a very uh, extreme way. And uh, so he was able to get through, but he had a very bitter experience uh, doing this. And he, he, he eventually came to the, conclusion that blacks should leave America, we shouldn't stay here and uh, and persist. So, but here's, here's, here's baseball opening up these ideas, give, giving you a glimpse into all these ideas and the culture going on. Uh, so that's, that's really, um, and you know, at the bottom of it is just the aggression and uh, the spirit, you have to really struggle to get ahead. And that was pure America in the 1880s. So that's what I tried to capture in the book. Yeah. And as you say, the other thing that struck me was, um, as you mentioned before, the the growth and importance of the railroads in facilitating yes. things like a National League and an American League, that this movement of clubs back and forth could actually happen. And it didn't have to just take place within a city. 
Right. And, and it couldn't get all the way out to the West Coast yet. That was uh, that had to wait for sort of airplanes. But but they got out to the Midwest, to St. Louis and Chicago, and uh, they could uh, bring that whole area into into America, into the the uh, baseball world. So um, this era of baseball, 1883, this wild pennant race, what effect did the fact that you had five teams contending for the pennant and the, the hurly-burly and back and forth and the newspaper coverage, which was, as you demonstrate in the book, really on top of this and sort of living and breathing this, what effect did the 1883 season have on the trajectory of baseball? Well, I think it made baseball much more popular, and and you could see that both in the National League, which had much uh, lower attendance figures than the American Association, but it it just generated a tremendous amount of interest in baseball. And by the end of the season, I write about a parade in a in a city that was the biggest parade since the end of the Civil War, and all of a sudden, this game that that was considered you know, sort of a minor aspect of life became this, uh, you know, very popular with people and they they uh, related to it and were proud of their local teams and it just started to steamroll. Uh, and I think that's why the season's a tremendously interesting one. Yeah, as you say, it, the subtitle, as it says, it made Baseball America's game, really, right? And as I, you say... Established, a, <clears throat> if you live in St. Louis or Chicago, now you are, you have to be attached to your major league team. Yeah, and baseball had been, you know, popular before that, but this all of a sudden, thousands turned into tens of thousands. And yeah, was, what are, uh, you mentioned attendance. What, what yeah. our listeners will be very interested to know what would be a typical attendance at a game. Well, these were, you know, very sparsely attended, probably a thousand to two thousand. Um, but uh, for some of these Sunday games, there were 15,000 to 20,000. And they they would just jam in the fans anywhere they could. You know, sometimes in the outfield, they they just put them behind a rope. Uh, they they would uh, be happy to sell tickets as, uh, as long as they could and put them anywhere. So I write about some of that, how the ball was, you know, the, the fielders had to contend with the fans in the outfield and <laughs> right and uh, actually uh Andre put a uh a beer garden in right field in st louis and the uh they had to deal with that as well so, <laughs> and he, he he actually had some great ideas he um you know these were all day games because they didn't really have lights although i write about um an experiment with lights having lights at a, a, night, a night game even in 1883, but for the most part, they didn't have lights at these ballparks. But Vondere would have uh, fireworks at the ballpark at night uh, just to promote his team. And obviously, that's still going strong. I just went to a minor league game a couple of weeks ago with a fireworks show at the end of it. And it's still uh, still drawing fans. So the, those players, would we recognize any of them today? I mean, for example, I think of, of uh, I'm a Detroit Tigers fan, born and raised in Michigan, Ty Cobb, I think, yeah. of, of course. But I think, if I'm not mistaken, Ty Cobb is a little bit later 
He's later. He's later. Would um, we know? Would modern listeners today know or remember any of these players? They that you probably have? wouldn't know these players. Uh, the most famous famous ones were sort of King Kelly in the National League and Cap Anson. A lot of this is the the National League uh, put their the National League um, the head of the National League was Al Spalding. The Spalding Ball. I don't know if people know about that. Oh but yeah, he, of course. Mm-hmm. He he sort of uh, led the way for the, for the eventually for the creation of the Hall of Fame, and they persistently put National League players in the Hall of Fame, but not American Association players. So a lot of these players are forgotten. But this Char- Charlie Comiskey played for the the St. Louis Browns in 1883, and he became famous as the owner of the Chicago White Sox years later in uh, Comiskey Field and all that is named for him. So people might have heard of him. Um, this, But, you know, mostly these people are forgotten and, and it's wonderful to bring them back. I mean, there's a guy uh, playing ball, Tony Mullane, who's throwing with both hands and that kind of stuff. Mm. Uh, there's... there's great early players like Harry Stovey, who stole uh, an incredible number of bases and was just uh, a superb player, but he's totally forgotten by history. And, you know, I always thought Vondere should be in the Hall of Fame, and there's been various efforts to put him there, but uh, he hasn't made it yet. Uh, That old prejudice against the American Association continues, and he's Uh such a... He's such a clownish figure in some ways that hurts him, but I think he did a wonderful job uh, bringing bringing baseball to life, and he should be recognized. What's one, one of... other famous players that uh, I can mention? Oh, Pete Browning was a fam- was a great player, but you know who knows Pete Browning now? He often right. dra- he often drank heavily and had trouble. Uh, you know, sometimes he would show up on the field drunk, and uh, that was a problem. It's <laughs> uh, so another aspect. You know, you mentioned, you know, how does this reflect American culture? Well, everybody drank. Uh, Americans drank huge amounts of liquor in those days, and ball players were uh, no different. They they often got in, into barroom brawls. They uh, they were drinking, they had hangovers, and uh, the clubs would try to crack down on them uh, and with, with varying success. And you have all these very uh, interesting personalities. Everything hadn't been ironed out. Everything wasn't based on statistical probability in those days. It was based on, you know, you get out there on the field and play the game. So, uh, and all of these amazing characters, do you have a favorite, maybe besides Chris Vondere, <laughs> do you have a favorite player or a favorite interesting story or moment that you uncovered? Uh, well, um, a moment I really love is, uh, I mentioned they had to have uh, nine players suited up for the start of the game. And one of the players hadn't made it to the to the ballpark yet when they were supposed to go out on the field. So I I write about one player faking these stomach cramps and groaning and and screaming and carrying on until the other player arrived and they could all go out on the field. And there was a there was a uh, 
a first baseman for the Cincinnati team, um, Long John Riley, who who was actually a uh, commercial artist, and he drew cartoons of that incident and other ones, and <laughs> and they're in the book. They uh, these wonderful cartoons of, and he drew one of Jumping Jack Jones, and uh, so you could you get a real flavor for the the color of uh, those times. What what in writing this book? Uh, I think a lot of our listeners, you know, they, they may know you from the Lincoln Miracle, um, and obviously there's some connection here with the 19th century. But what? Uh, how'd you uncover this really interesting character and this really <laughs> interesting story? I you know I just loved early baseball mainly for this reason that it's so little known, um, and you really have to work like a slave to dig out the to go back and dig out these stories you have to read every newspaper I, I was a journalist in Washington and I would go every night I would go to the Library of Congress and look through their newspaper files um, they had virtually every newspaper from around America and that formed the basis of my research were my two baseball books uh, this one in 59 and 84 about uh, old Hoss Radborn um, who won 59 or 60 games in a single season as a pitcher, which is incredible. But anyways, I was just, I was fascinated with the early game because these people are so forgotten and they deserve to be remembered. Um, and I wanted to tell their stories. And I, I, I use uh, a technique of, it's sort of called micro history. I mean, I looked at a single season and, both of my baseball books. And I tend to look at short periods. In my two Lincoln books, I looked at just one day in Lincoln's life, 24 hours in uh, every drop of blood. And then in my new book, The Lincoln Miracle, I look at one week. And when you get down to the ground like that, um, all of a sudden these people come to life. They seem like human beings and you can describe what's going on the scene the color the way it smells the way it sounds and uh, i tried to do that in all these books and they i suppose that's what they all have in common um i try to really put you there and make you give you a feel for what it actually felt like at the time yeah i have to tell our listeners that the the characters are incredibly vivid <laughs> wonderfully <laughs> drawn you have succeeded in sort of bringing them back to life in all of their uh complexity <laughs> and all of their reality <laughs> yes i i think i would be remiss without in letting you go without asking you you've studied early baseball you've written about this amazing 1883 season you're obviously a baseball fan um compare 1883 baseball to today's baseball well it's uh 1883 baseball was very quick it was rat it was action-packed it's so contrary to what our view of baseball is now uh they didn't have long commercial breaks between innings so they one team went out on the field and then the other team went out on the field and they didn't have a great a big long break between uh innings so the games went very quickly they were about an hour and a half or two wow. hours yeah, yeah twice that now at least yeah. right and and um you know base actually baseball was competing with um cricket for a while to be america's most popular game and they in the 1800s and uh 
baseball won out because it was considered this fast-paced, lively, action-packed game. Um, and it was. They they played. They didn't waste a lot of time. They didn't go through all this nonsense that modern players do. They just got out there and played. And uh, if they got out of line, the other pitcher would knock them, you know, knock them down. Uh, and they, there was no uh, penalty for that at the time. You could you could hit a batsman, and he couldn't take uh, first base. Oh, really? Uh huh. So uh, these guys stayed, you know, stayed in line, and the pitchers had to hit when they got up. So it kept them fairly honest. Uh, so it was so it was a different game. The the most of the games took place in the afternoon, so sort of the upper middle class could leave their offices and go out to the ballpark. And they had to play them fast to get in before uh, dusk descended. Um, there was one umpire uh, instead of four, and that that because the owners were so cheap. I mean, they 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 didn't have a lot of money, so they just hired one umpire. And of course, that that permitted a great deal of cheating to go on. Uh, right. So there's a guy, famous guy, King Kelly in the National League, who used to. When the umpire was uh, looking at the ball going out to right field, he would cut. Uh, he, he, he was on second base. He just missed third base by ten feet and run home. And uh, the crowd would see it, but the umpire <laughs> would be distracted and couldn't see it. So, uh, there, so that permitted you know all sorts of antics that I write about in these books. Um, the other thing was they used they tried to use one baseball a game. Now, I, I knew a minor league owner who told me they they averaged 104 baseballs a game. Um, yeah, how do you possibly have one baseball? They had one. So when it was fouled in the crowd, they had to throw it back onto the field. Um, and by the end of the game, it was mushy and the the uh, it was falling apart and it was uh, in really bad shape. So that that made that helped the pitchers quite a bit because it was harder to drive the ball. So this is, you know, this is the game that was played back then. It's very interesting to me how they uh, how they did this and adapted their strategy to it. Uh, it's fascinating. It is a terrific story. Let me commend it to our listeners. Again, it's at Acorn's book, The Summer of Beer and Whiskey. If you, uh, you have a copy of it, there, there it <laughs> That's is. What it looks like. <laughs> I do have a copy. <laughs> there it is. And it is a wonderful book. If you love baseball, if you love American history, social history, cultural history, you are going to love this book. And as I said, the story is just a ripping good page turner. And thanks so much for taking the time again to join us on The American Idea. Well, thank you, Jeff. It was great to be here. Thank you for listening to this episode of The American Idea. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and leave a five-star review. If you want to learn more or get involved in Ashbrook's vital work, visit our website, ashbrook.org.